News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of the dancing plague of 1518? I know, neither have I, but that's what we do this segment for at this hour of the morning. It's so we can learn about great events, a lot of historical ones that we didn't know anything about. So I'm going to turn to our guest. It's Dr. John Waller, Associate Professor of the History of Medicine at Michigan State University and author of a book called A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. He wrote about this. Dr. Waller, thanks for being here. My pleasure. How did you even uncover this story? What was the dancing plague of 1518? Yeah, I came across a brief description of this bizarre event back in the early 2000s, where I was doing some teaching on the history of mental illness. And this, this brief reference piqued my interest, but I strongly suspected that it was not true. So I, I read about uh, an outbreak of dancing that involved hundreds of people in what is now the French city of Strasbourg that an unknown number of people died, and then it just went away. So that sounded pretty, pretty improbable to me. So I decided to look into it in a bit more detail. And there was a time, a century and a half ago, when people were actually writing about this, but it had been largely forgotten. And I was so intrigued by trying to explain what had happened that I decided to write a book on it. And the first thing, of course, was establishing um, to my own satisfaction that this was true. And before long, I became absolutely convinced it had happened, largely because the documentary evidence is so good that we actually even have um, notes written by the city council describing it happening uh, on a day-to-day basis. So there's no question that this dancing mania, this plague actually happened. Okay, so what was going on? Well, it's probably helpful if I give a, a very quick outline of the events. It seems that it began with one lone woman dancing somewhere around the middle of July in 1518. And initially, the, the, the chronicles and a few uh, um, eyewitnesses said that they thought it was a joke. They thought, in fact, that she might just be trying to wind up her husband. But then she kept dancing all through that day. Then she would collapse, and she got up, and she started again the next day. She was in pain. She clearly didn't want to be dancing. And eventually, they bundle her into a cart and take her to a nearby shrine. But by the time she returns, if if, if she ever did, there were about 20 or 30 more people who had been consumed by this urge to dance. Over the course of the following couple of months, around about four or more hundred people had at one point or another been pulled into this mass dance. And there were some extraordinary details. One of them is that the city authorities thought it would help for them to take the dancers, put them in very public places, including a a, a stage that they built in the center of the city and had them dance there. And they then paid for musicians and healthy dancers to keep them moving. So you've got this absolutely bizarre spectacle going on for a week, maybe two weeks, of hundreds of people dancing in the full glare of the city. Okay, it sounds so absolutely bizarre. It sounds absolutely bizarre the way you describe it, Dr. Waller. <laughs> so do we, did we ever find out like what was going on? Why were these people doing it? Yes, yeah, so I think it's interesting the way it came to an end. 
So after maybe a a couple of weeks of this very, very public spectacle, the city authorities got together and said, this clearly isn't working because more and more people were were being sucked into this behavior. And so eventually they take them on carts to a shrine, which is located about 40 miles away from Strasbourg. There they put red shoes on their feet, bless them, had them walk around a shrine dedicated to a saint in circles, and then the chronicles say they recovered. So (laughs) there are just layers and layers of mystery to this event. But one of the main theories that had been floated in the the 19th century was that they were suffering from ergotism, that these people had eaten rye, um, rye bread with flour that had been um, infected with um, a mold it's basically like LSD, but it causes um, a, a, a tightening of the blood vessels, but also hallucinations and deep depression. And that was that, I thought that was pretty persuasive at first, but that, then I looked into ergotism rather more, and it's quite clear that although it's a terrifying thing to suffer from, and people in that area did sometimes um, suffer from ergotism, there's no way that you could dance for days. Um, um, with, with this kind of affliction. And the chronicles are very clear on this. People were on their feet for days and days. And they would maybe collapse and sleep for a while. Maybe somebody would force some water and food into their mouths. But this was a long, demanding, involuntary dance. Okay, and so when it was all done so, and it was all over with, did people just, like, forget about it and move on? I mean, who knows? I mean, once they started to recover... The, the chroniclers lost interest in them. So we don't know how many people were traumatized, but we, we do know this is quite clear that people died. And it's not surprising that this was a famously hot summer in Strasbourg. These people are being forced to stay on their feet, so to stay on their feet um, in the city, dancing and dancing and dancing. So you know, those with poor circulation, um, weak hearts, um, some of them were inevitably going to die. So you've also got um, the, the grief that followed. But in terms of explaining what happened, I think there were two important things to be aware of. The first is that this year, that these years were really difficult times to be alive. I think we all know that if you're going to have your choice of when to live, you're probably not going to choose um, late medieval Europe. However, even by the standards of the day, these were terrible, terrible years. There were new diseases like syphilis, which were tearing through the city, uh, repeated harvest failures. Uh, people were starving. The orphanage was full. So very, very high levels of psychological distress. And we know that that makes people more susceptible to outlandish beliefs. But for me, the real breakthrough was learning that in this particular part of Europe, there was a belief that a, that a saint called St. Vitus could curse you with a compulsion to dance. So they imagined this saint would stalk the world looking for sinners um, whom he would then curse. And what I think happened is that these people were in such a state of distress, they became convinced that God had abandoned them. And then they saw some started to imagine that St. Vitus had cursed them in punishment. Now, lots of people have studied um, religious ceremonies in which people fall into trances and then they act according to that religion. That's what I think happened here. In their distress, these beliefs that they had always held 
started to become very, very persuasive. And so they fell into the trance, and then they started to dance uh, according to their beliefs. And then, of course, given that people were dancing, hundreds of them in the center of the city, anybody walking by who felt that maybe they had sinned, maybe they were being punished, they were then ripe to fall into the trance themselves and dance like everybody else. Right. Oh, what it's, it's really interesting, I guess, lesson in kind of crowd behavior, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This is very much what, what used to be called mass hysteria, uh, what psychologists yes. tend now to refer to as mass psychogenic illness. But is there a clear contagiousness to what was happening? So fascinating. Thank you so much for your time on that. My pleasure. It's wild, right? That's Dr. John Waller, Associate Professor of the History of Medicine at Michigan State University and author of a book about this dancing plague. It's called A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. But going back through history and finding examples of this mass hysteria situation, just, yeah, as I said, fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. I've been waiting to talk to Vaughn all morning because there's so much to talk about. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simeon. Before we start, I need your assurance on something. All right. So I, I listened to the NW News this morning like I do every day, mm-hmm. and I start with the news, and I hear uh, the port strike is still on. Uh, this Surrey policing thing isn't settled, and a truck has hit an overpass and blocked the highway, and I'm going... Have I walked into a remake of Groundhog Day here in BC? <laughs> Are you having deja vu? Is that what the problem is? I'm having massive. Like, <laughs> do we ever get rid of any storylines no. in this province? No, apparently we don't. That's what I thought too. I thought, oh, we're going to move into the like you know slow part of summer at some point. No, no, it's just the same stories keep coming back. I had that feeling with the overpass too situation yesterday. I could not believe it. And what what is the deal with this port strike? What happened? Well. You know, uh, the federal minister, uh, Seamus O'Regan, and the premier of British Columbia, David Eby, both when that uh, tentative deal was announced last week, tentative acceptance of a mediator's saw-off on the dispute, uh, they both said, see, collective bargaining works. I thought so too, you know. I, I thought, okay, yeah. great. Uh, you guys, uh, you know, you, 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 you held back and you stepped in at the right moment and you got a mediator's report. And initially the indications were that uh, this report was going to be put to the membership, the longshoremen, the shore workers, the longshore workers, port workers. And, uh, you know, the betting line was they were going to accept it. Well, couple of things that happened. It never went to the members. What happened is the caucus, which is the caucus of leaders of the union, turned it down and reversed direction on it, said it's not good enough. So, you know, I mean, they have the power to do that. But I think the big question today for the union leadership to explain is, How come you didn't send it to your members and find out where they stand on this? Uh, In any event, we're back into a strike. And now the challenge to those who thought, you know, collective bargaining is great and the best deals are reached at the table, what now? Can the national economy, the BC economy, the Western economy stand another strike while they try to negotiate a better deal? I mean, the mediator is a professional, presumably recommended what uh, he thought was the meeting ground. Uh, Does the federal government recall Parliament now, having admitted that collective bargaining didn't work, and uh, legislate the mediator's report as a settlement? I mean, that's 
that would be the sort of fallback position you'd expect. But, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think the federal government wants to have to recall parliament. So maybe they'll send the mediator back and say, yeah, yeah, we know what you said, but uh, have another go at finding a meeting ground. I wonder if the, uh, the whole thing about it not being sent to the membership will be the, the, the hook that the federal government finally steps in on and says, that's not acceptable. You can't do that. Yeah, I mean, the trouble with that, of course, is you could order them to put it to the members and that'll blow up in your face because the members will back their leaders, right? They'll go. So, you know, no, it, it's not easy to see a way through this. And, you know, the, the, the trouble with recalling Parliament is so the federal NDP is out with an instant statement. No surprise. Uh, they're backing the workers, right? Even though the workers didn't actually vote on this. Uh, they're backing the union and they're saying, you know, unions or uh, members are allowed to reject offers. Yes, they are. And the liberals, of course, exist in power only because of the continuing support of the federal NDP. So if you're going to recall parliament and impose a settlement, you're going to have to find the votes to support that idea somewhere else. Yes, presumably the conservatives, because of their base in Western Canada in particular, would say it's good for the economy and yeah, we support back to work, but you know, they, they may have something else they want to get out of parliament too. You know, parliament meets, uh, you've got question period, you've got other issues, you've got this festering, lingering uh, call for a public inquiry into Chinese political influence in Canadian politics. And, and that story is such a big deal. It was on the front page of the New York Times on Sunday. So, uh, you know, it, it's now into the realm of a very tough political call for the Trudeau government. They thought they had a win last week. And you could say, well, you know, I thought they did too. So, you know, they took a, a, a victory lap. Maybe it was premature, but now... Uh, it's really not clear how they proceed from here. They're looking at a much tougher call than they faced last week. All right, we have more to talk about with Von Palmer this morning. And Von, I'm, I'm with you because I, I'm not even going to say this is a final decision on Surrey policing today because we've said that too many times and I don't think it actually is going to be a final decision. No, I don't think it is either. And I also think uh, we're going to have trouble getting anything beyond uh, just the announcement today. So the Solicitor General, uh, Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth, has got a double header today. There's a technical briefing with his staff for the news media at 1045, and they'll give us all the numbers and explain everything. That's embargoed. We don't actually get to write that and report it until Farnworth starts the formal press conference at noon. And, you know, whatever the decision is, and yes, we expect that the province is going to say, no, Surrey, uh, stick with the RCMP, uh, you're going to want to know about the implications of that decision. response if there's a lawsuit from Surrey. What does it mean for the long-term future of the RCMP in BC? What about the Premier's suggestion last week that RCMP is maybe not sustainable here? What about a provincial police force? Now, here's something interesting, Simi. I'm looking at the announcements from the government yesterday of the media schedule for today. Premier David Eby will not be at the press conference in Victoria, the one that unfolds at 12. Not only that, he will be in Campbell River this morning for a long-term care announcement with Health Minister Adrian Dix. 
That goes at 10 a.m. There will be media questions afterward, but none of us will be able to ask him about what's in the tech report on the Surrey policing decision because we're all under embargo. So David Eby has got an event at around 12.35, 12.40, but he's not taking media questions. Right. So what that tells me is that this is uh, solo, Mike Farmworth. Okay, it's your job. You're the minister. You go out and announce things, but I think the government is facing this and going, it's not over, and why should the premier have to climb out on a limb today and tell everybody what it means when the provincial government doesn't know what's happening next? Okay, and that, well, that's just one of the many things that we're kind of keeping an eye on here. There's so many open questions, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, and the premier, the premier escalated this thing or raised it to another level last week. So he goes to the premier's conference in Winnipeg. And what he hears in Winnipeg from other premiers is, hey, we've got a big problem with the RCMP in our province too. You know, we've got shortages and vacancies. And the federal government has told us that they want us to meet with us about the future of the RCMP as a provider of contract services. So RCMP providing local policing, city policing, provincial policing. And the other premiers, uh, Manitoba, Alberta, maybe even Saskatchewan, are going... If we're going to have to set up our own provincial police forces, we've got to get going on that. Take a few years to do that. And Amy's reaction, which he shares with reporters, is, hey, I, I learned here that, that all, a number of other Canadian provinces have the same question we do, which is, what's the future of the RCMP? EB lets slip that he doesn't think it's sustainable at the moment. And all of that leads us to jump to the obvious conclusion, which is, there is no way the B.C. government is going to approve Surrey going back to the RCMP when the RCMP may not even have a future in the province. Well, that raises a whole bunch of questions about future policing in the province, future of the RCMP. Will there be a provincial police force as a legislature committee recommended here last year? But of course, Simi, the other questions, and you've alluded to them, is what is Surrey's response Mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, I mean, uh, thank you, Brenda, for putting ads on CKNW. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, I always right. appreciate it when politicians put ads out to state their position. Uh, but it's clear that Surrey isn't going to accept anything other than endorsement of its plan to go back to the RCMP. So are we looking at a lawsuit? Is Surrey going to make one more attempt to persuade the provincial government it's right uh, it's it's certainly not over, uh, and uh, we don't really know what happens next, and if we're smart, we won't predict it, given what's right. happened on this story and the port story so long. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And one more thing before I let you go, this overpass situation. Like, well, I'm at, still... At some I'm point, doesn't the ministry have to bring the hammer down here? I think they do, but I'm still holding out hope that uh, the folks who drive trucks can learn to use a measuring tape, too, since... Uh, Apparently not. You know, there was a caller at NW last week who said that, you know, there is a simple solution to this. It's called a measuring tape. <laughs> Measure the height of your load yeah. and then pay attention to what is painted on the overpass as you approach it. But yes, the province is going to have to get tougher on this. I mean... But, Simi, this has happened a whole bunch of times, and every time it happens, they oh, we're not going to stand for this any longer. Well, they're doing a pretty good job of standing for it so far. Well, it would seem to me the trucking companies then need to get the message yeah. through to their people. 
They do, and there's no licensing issue, and the provincial government has licensing. It also has the ability to impose much larger fines than it does. I mean, how about if you hit an overpass and damage it, you're going to pay to fix the overpass, the full amount, right? The highways ministry is going to send you a bill. I would love that. If that would actually happen, I would love that, but we'll try to find out. Uh, Thanks for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news and as we've been talking about, more than 7,000 workers from the International Longshore and Warehouse Union in BC are back on strike. That's despite the fact that we all thought a tentative deal had been reached last week. Well, that deal was rejected by the internal caucus of the union without putting it to a vote of the membership. But what it means is that picket lines are back up. And once again, ports will get backed up, which will affect people and businesses right across the country. Now, the workers say, or the union says, that they don't feel this was a deal that their workers would benefit from, that there wasn't enough job security, that they feel this is an opportunity for them to get that job security for years to come. And they didn't see it in this deal. But it also leaves, you know, the federal government frustrated, the provincial government frustrated, businesses frustrated, lots of calls for them to step in now. So I wanted to talk about the history of this, too. Is this is this usually what happens with a port strike? How contentious is this? And what are the next steps that could happen here? Well, Dr. Rafael Gomez is with us, a professor of employment relations and director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Dr. Gomez, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So when you look at this port strike, does it look like other port strikes that we have had? Well, uh, the history of, yeah, the ports are a critical piece of national infrastructure. They've also historically been uh, one of the first uh, sectors to be unionized and kind of effectively unionized. By that, I mean the kind of uh, union power and strength in that particular sector has been pretty strong in part because of the nature of the work. Most of the people doing the work identify uh, with each other in a like-minded way, which means collective bargaining kind of works well in that scenario, right? Where, you know, you have a collective agreement, it sort of fits the majority of the workers and the majority of workers identify with each other. So there's a strong degree of solidarity. So it doesn't, that does actually often lead to deals getting made, usually at the last hour, because of that strength and power of that kind of union, the employer uh, tends to know that they can only push so far. And if they want a deal, they usually strike the deal, usually at the end of a process or after a short strike. When strikes get long and lengthy, the history has been that these have uh, prompted interventions, right? Because it's such a critical piece of infrastructure. Our nation depends on these ports, um, both economically, but, you know, in a prolonged strike, it also begins to affect very important matters of, uh, of health and critical safety and security, right? When key pieces of, of goods don't come to shore. So that's the history. It's a, it's an interesting one from a labor history standpoint, but when you live in the moment, it's also quite scary. Right, which is kind of what we see happening right now, because we thought, well, wait a minute, everybody thought we were moving right. forward. So what, what are the tools here that are available uh, to, to change this scenario? Yeah. So, you know, historically, there's the blunt instrument of forcing the workers back, um, uh, kind of imposing a deal. That has worked in the short term, but tends to backfire in the long term. Also, the employer and the government, there's been a successive series of cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court, 
that has said that taking away the right to strike in a kind of arbitrary way is uh, not on, right? It's a sort of violation of our charter rights and freedom of association. And, and those court cases happened in the 2000s and have sort of overturned earlier cases that happened in the 80s and 90s. So, yes, in the short term, they, you know, we could get the ports back up and running. But, you know, to what degree would workers be motivated? Could they slow down work, in which case you're not really getting the outcome you want? And in the end, you get a, a deal that might be imposed in the short run that's then overturned later and is more generous even you know, to the workers. What I find that's useful in these cases, if it does lead to sort of a very prolonged lockout, and, and in this case, this is a very essential kind of service for the not just BC economy, but for the whole national economy, we have a very mature and well-established system of arbitration in Canada. We've got some of the best arbitrators in the world. We set up the system. And what that is, it's sort of a third party that comes in and listens to both sides and makes a ruling, right? A kind of a, a way of finding a deal, uh, yeah. often sometimes even with mediation kind of built into the arbitration, right? Um, so that, that's a system that is really well-developed and works. And I'm surprised that more uh, often than not, it's, it's not not being used. It's used a lot, of course, but usually voluntarily by both sides. But it can, you know, in cases like this, also be um, brought in um, should the, you know, uh, the, the, the necessity warrant it. And I think, you know, a port strike of this size, of this importance, especially an economy that's rebounding still from COVID, right, and the lockdowns and all the supply chain issues, yeah. I, I do think that that's something that should be looked at. Do you if think that now parties, federal government the, yeah. is is inevitable now? Do you think that the federal government, they said that they can't have this. The statement yeah. that they came out with says that this, we've been patient, but this is it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's also the interesting part. If, 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 if they feel this is more strategy and, and bargaining negotiation, if they feel they can't get what they get, one party or the other, in this case, perhaps the union, feels it can't get what it wants at the bargaining table, um, it might be hoping and desiring that a third party comes in and maybe they think that they, they can get the deal they want. Alternatively, it's about uh, not creating this sort of uh, sense of every time there's a dispute, some, some action is taken because then that really does weaken the whole bargaining process and it degenerates to a place where no one really bargains in the end. There's always a labor dispute, whether it's a lockout or a strike. And then there's some kind of uh, delay and people uh, lose time, workers lose wages, um, products don't get to market. Um, so it's, it's a delicate game. You have to play yeah. it, I think, with the consent of the parties is always the best. In other words, tell them, look, the outcome could be a lot worse. We'll oppose a deal. Or how about sit down with an arbitrator or mediator and get this fixed and get workers back to work in the meantime. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, Dr. Gomez, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. This is supposed to be blockbuster season where you just can't resist going to the movies weekend after weekend. And certainly there has been a lot of big budget offerings, but we're not exactly flocking to the movie theater, are we? So what does that say about blockbuster season? That's what our Scott Chance has been looking into. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? Good. I haven't made it yet. to no. the movie. I kept thinking, I said to myself, oh, maybe the Indiana Jones movie. And then nope. Now, didn't want to, the reviews were terrible. And then I was like, oh, for sure, the Mission Impossible movie. 
Yeah, no. Now I'm telling myself that maybe Oppenheimer will get me there, but it still hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of people, a lot of people talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer opening this weekend, but I looked, you, like, if you want to go see Oppenheimer tonight, you can get tickets at that's, certain- I'm shocked. Right? At certain theaters in, in the lower mainland. Not necessarily great seats, great showings and stuff, but there are, I assumed it would be sold out for sure, and the Barbie movie as well. But this is a thing that's been happening in Hollywood. Obviously, we have the writer's strike and the actor's strike and those th- like it's a symptom of something bigger going on okay i also wonder perhaps there, there are way more movie theaters than there used to be yep uh right it used to be you had to go to one there's like maybe a couple of them now they're everywhere totally. they're huge and there's so many screens and it's expensive it is expensive and they cost more to make but i also think that there's something there with like just the fading allure you know streaming is up and also, like it has to do with the content that they're putting out, and the Indiana Jones movie is a perfect example of how uh, people just aren't interested in the same old story anymore, right? Like the first three Indiana Jones movies were perfect. Okay, well that's a bit much to say the Temple of Doom was perfect, but okay, well, all right, that's for, fine. For its time, uh, and four was d- a disaster, total disaster. Crystal Skull. Uh, I spoke about this phenomenon with a film critic from Toronto. Her name is Rachel Ho, and uh, she is very interested in this conversation. And I asked her about about um, summer block, uh, blockbuster season. Is it fading out? I think it depends on how you define fading and going away. I think, you know, we've seen Mission Impossible just this past weekend. It brought in about, I mean, just under 55 million in the U.S. and Canada. Um, it, just in the weekend alone, like on from, I think, Friday to Sunday. And I think that that's a pretty good going. And I think overall for the five day, they took in about 80 million. Uh, which is just underneath the expected 90. But I would hardly say that that's fading. Um, I would think that, you know, there's quite a few people who had gone out to to watch Mission Impossible, who've gone out to watch Indiana Jones 5. And and I'm sure a lot of people this week are going to go out to go with Oppenheimer and Barbie. Um, But I think, I mean, if you compare it to the days of when Independence Day came out, Men in Black, you know, those types of things, then yes, I think certainly... Uh, you can consider that the blockbusters are certainly fading. But I do think it's a bit relative. You mentioned box office numbers. It wasn't even that long ago that it felt like a big movie should easy make like a hundred million, you know, like these tentpole movies, like a mission impossible movie. And this one, especially with all the hype around it. And there was so much pre-promotion, you know, like, do you think, do you think that the movie studio is disappointed by those numbers? Like, do you think they set that expectation kind of low, hoping that they're going to go over it? Probably. I mean, that's what I would do personally. Um, I think they definitely did. It used to be, and it doesn't feel that long ago, but maybe it's longer than we think it is, um, that 100 mil in the opening weekend was nothing. You know, I was looking at the opening box office numbers for Captain America Civil War, and that brought in 166 million in its opening weekend. That's just 2016, I believe it was. So that's quite a bit of money that's being brought in. I think it's it's a mix of just people finding different ways to watch movies as well. Like we all know that Mission Impossible, Indy Five, those are all going to come out on streaming services probably within the next few months, you know. And then you can watch it very easily at home. Um, and it's you don't discount either how expensive it is to go to the movies now, which it wasn't like this. Uh, you know, even five, 10 years ago, the prices weren't this high, snacks weren't this high. Uh, so that I think all factors in as well. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, the the cost thing probably is one of the biggest factors. Do you think we're kind of tiring of superhero and sequel and like, oh gosh, this again? I think so. I, I think, you know, there's only so far that we can go with watching a different Batman come up on screen. And I love Batman, don't get me wrong. Totally. But I do think, you know, it, we love Harrison Ford, we love Indiana Jones, but I think we can all agree the first three movies that came out in the 80s were perfect and they were great and there's no need to do a new one, but they kept doing it anyway. Um, and, you know, it, it's an interesting, I think the younger generation in particular, I think they're getting a little bit sick as well of not having something that is their own. You know, when we grew up, we had the original Jurassic Park. We had the original, you know, indies to, to watch and to enjoy. Um, but what the younger generation has gotten in the last, say 10, 15 years is a regurgitation of what our generation got growing up. And I think that that is becoming a bit of a problem because we don't want to just continue to see the rehashing or the rebooting of this franchise and that franchise. Do you think that like people going to movies, um, like we're going to get back to that where that was a thing like, hey, every Friday night, like I remember when Independence Day, like when that movie came out, mm -hmm. you you couldn't even get to the movie theater. There was like traffic okay. jams and stuff, you know, like trying to get to the theater because everybody wanted to see it. Do you think we're going to get back to those days? I don't think so. If I'm completely as much as I would love it, I, I don't think so. I don't know if, you know, the the days of in the late 90s, early 2000s of going to the movie theater. I think those days are gone just simply because one, streaming really has taken over. Um, but two, you know, like I said before, it's just very expensive to go to the movies now. And there's so many other things for people to get stimulated by and to do with their, with their money that, you know, going to the movie theater is not necessarily a priority thing for even, like just a casual film goer anymore. Yeah, I do think movie theaters will stick around. I know there was some talk about that during the pandemic of whether or not they're all going to run into the ground, but I do think that they'll continue to be a successful industry. It just won't be nearly as successful as it used to be. That's Rachel Ho. She's a film critic from Toronto. There you go, Simi. Just wait till Oppenheimer comes out streaming. I think you know what they should do? Go back to Half Price Tuesdays. Ooh, I love it. Or you'd Half Price any day of the week and watch people get excited about going to the movies again. Totally. Right? Give us a break. We'll go. Thank you for that, Scott. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Going to talk about housing because getting people out of encampments, off the streets, and into housing of some kind, any kind, it's an ongoing challenge, right? Not just here in BC, but pretty much all over these days. So it is good news that there are some new spaces coming online. It's a partnership between the City of Vancouver and BC Housing. But how many spaces and how much of a difference will these make? Well, for more on this, we're turning now to Ravi Kalan, BC's Minister of Housing. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, so what about these new spaces? How many are we talking about here? So we've got 60 spaces that have opened up. Uh, these are the modular units on uh, Western Street. Uh, and we've got an additional 29 spaces opening up uh, at an alternative site that we've been working on. And, and you know, what, what's significant about these units is that these are spaces for people that are in shelters right now. Uh, these units have, uh, you know, uh, their own washroom. They have supports, meal supports, security, obviously, around the venue. 
and so this was really a, a transition into getting people into more uh, regular housing beyond this housing. So this is a, uh, another step in the progression to get people into perhaps very soon into market housing. So it's a welcome step. We appreciate the partnership with the city of Vancouver and, uh, uh, and this will really relieve a lot of pressure on our shelters uh, as they exist now. Right, because I think people maybe don't fully understand how that system works, right? you If there are people on the street, the first step is for them to get into a shelter. From the shelter, they go to the temporary housing, and then they hopefully get into housing. That, that's correct. Yeah, we we push people to take the opportunities in the shelters because it allows us to uh, do the assessments to find out what kind of needs people have. Because in some cases, a person just needs a little bit of rent supplement uh, to, to be able to get back into market housing. You know, they've got, a, they've got a job. They just can't find a place to, to live. And they were, you know, forced to sleep in a park. I mean, this is the reality in, in many of our communities around the country. Uh, and in some cases, uh, people have real serious mental health challenges and they, and they need additional support. So we do the assessment there. Then we get them into the type of housing that we think uh, that they need. Uh, and then from there, we've had many cases. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet with so many individuals who, who've gone from living in a park to getting into shelter to getting uh, into market housing and being trained up to help other people that are in, in living in encampments or in shelters. And so, uh, you know, there is hope that uh, this, uh, this process can work because it's helping a lot of individuals, but there's still a lot of work for us to do. Okay, so these are 89 spaces that have come available in the temporary modular housing, but is this not the same housing that the City of Vancouver last week voted to not extend the leases for after 2024? Well, this uh, one site that uh, the City voted on uh, was always meant to be temporary. Uh, And so we have been planning for some time for that site to be not to be renewed. In fact, the individuals that were at that site uh, have been uh, multiple times offered other locations or other accommodations because we knew that was a temporary site. Now, that being said, we do have other sites that uh, are under lease with the city of Vancouver, and certainly our hope is that when they come up that we're able to renew them. Uh, we have no indication that that's not the case at this stage, uh, but we will be obviously uh, having those conversations. Okay, so there is, is there another site that this one is going to be moving to? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So the, the site uh, that right now we have is operating. The, uh, the site that closed down, uh, I believe, was, or is closing down very sh- uh, soon, uh, the one I suppose was in the media, um, individuals from that site, many of them have already, already moved into other accommodation that we found them. Uh, there are some people that are still there and we're, we continue to work with them to find uh, alternative locations for them. So is it every step of the process that needs expansion then? Do we need more temporary housing? Do we need more supportive housing? And, and are we filling those gaps? Uh, yes, we need everything. And, uh, you know, often the debate happens around, you know, should there be more private sector housing? Should there be non, uh, not-for-profit housing? You know, should there be housing for um, people who, uh, you know, can afford $800,000 or a million-dollar condo? Should there be units for people who can only afford, you know, 300,000 units? And the answer is everything is needed. Uh, Right now, when you take pressure off one area of the housing market, you actually help create space in the other. And so, uh, yep, we need everything. Uh, We are investing heavily, I think, historic levels of dollars from a provincial level 
to build all types of housing because we know that um, housing is different for different people and we have to find ways to meet people where they're at. Okay. And are we making progress in getting people off the street, do you think? Uh, well, it's definitely making progress getting people off the street, um, but the challenge is, is, is quite significant coming out of the pandemic. And, uh, and again, you know, I was meeting with my counterparts from across the country. Every single community is dealing with similar challenges. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm proud of is that I've been able to meet with people who actually have been able to go through the system and get their feet back underneath them. And, uh, and that gives me hope that all this work is actually helping individuals, but we still have a lot of work to do. Okay, so then if they're, if we're moving people along with these 89 new spaces, does that mean so people from the shelter move into this temporary housing? Does that mean that we can now take more people off the street and put them into the shelter? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we actually have space in our shelters right now. We have, this is not the only site where we move people out of shelters into, uh, but, you know, we've been creating space in the shelter. In fact, we've expanded our shelter space for individuals. And so the spaces are available. Uh, we continue to work with individuals. Uh, we have teams on the ground uh, encouraging people to take the space. Uh, what we find is in the summertime, yeah. uh, people, some people just choose to be outside because they think it's, you know, there's community or they just prefer it. And that, um, you know, th- that's a bit of a challenge uh, for us. Uh, but we're, we continue to work with individuals, again, find them the supports they need so that they can get that stability in their lives again. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. Stay safe. Appreciate that. That's Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Housing, essentially explaining how the process works to move people off the street. It's like a three-step process to get them into eventually supportive housing. Uh, That's the way it works, but a lot of people don't want to take that first step of coming off the street into a shelter, which is the way they can access people, find out more about them, get them into the application process, right? That's also a big challenge right there. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's update the situation with the port strike situation. Well, they're back on strike, right? We know that. They rejected a tentative agreement, or at least the internal caucus of the union did. So we thought this was over back on the picket lines as of yesterday afternoon. Now, the Maritime Employers Association uh, has expressed regret over the rejection. They said they believe it included significant wage and benefit hikes. We know the federal government has said they're not happy with the rejection. They're disappointed over the agreement fall. Falling apart. And this has been a huge impact on the province right across the country. Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has estimated that there's been more than $9 billion of trade that has been disrupted since the strike started. Let's talk a little bit more about those disruptions and what this has done. So John Corey joins us now, President of Freight Management Association of Canada. John, thanks for being here. Uh, it's my pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. John, can you give us an idea, the stopping, the starting, the stopping again, what has this done to freight in this country? It has completely disrupted the supply chain. Even before the strike happened on January 1st, their shippers were looking for alternatives just because there was a threat of a strike. So we had disruption even before, weeks before the actual strike. When the strike actually happened, um, you know, boxes, containers stopped moving in and out of Vancouver. That had a ripple effect across the supply chain right across the country. And for every day of a strike, it usually takes about a week to iron out the the disruption. So, you know, when the strike was uh, over tentatively, that was 13 days. 
it was probably going to be sometime early October before the supply chain got back to normal. Now, if this strike goes on for many more days, we could be looking at November, December, depending on how long. So this could be extremely disruptive. There's going to be shortages on store shelves. Uh, There's going to be layoffs in plants and mills. It's going to be extremely bad for the country and also for British Columbia. How widespread is this? Like we've seen that, you know, port workers in the United States on the West Coast have said they're not going to handle cargo that might have gone through the, you know, the port of Vancouver. So can you give me an idea of that? Well, there are some shippers who have alternatives. Uh, Some of them, uh, there was an article a little while back, Campotex, who transports potash uh, for the industry. We're looking to maybe divert traffic away from Vancouver and go down onto CP Kansas City to Texas, further on to Brazil. Uh, If that works out, that traffic's not going back to Vancouver. Uh, We have a member who has quit Vancouver outright. Uh, they, do, they don't go in or out of there anymore because of disruptions. And this was already in the books, obviously, before the strike happened. But this is just sort of uh, shows that they made the right choice and they're going to ship exclusively in and out of Montreal and Halifax. So anyone who can find an alternative will find an alternative. Unfortunately, the West Coast, the U.S., I understand the union solidarity. They're not going to handle that traffic. But um, people who can find alternatives will. And people who can't find alternatives, business is going to suffer, which means layoffs, shutdown of mills. Um, it's, it's not going to be pretty. What do you think is going to happen here? Well, I was, you know, I was hopeful when the, when the strike was over. But when I heard the news last night, I was shocked, but not surprised. Um, you know, the union didn't really get what they wanted. They wanted 17% over two years or 18%. The, the contract or the offer was 17 over four years. Uh, there's still the question about expanding the maintenance work for the union. There's also the automation issue. So at this point, uh, you know, the, I think the only option the government has is to legislate them back to work. And if there was ever a reason to automate going forward, this strike is a reason for the employer to start looking because the, obviously the workforce is volatile and, 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 uh, and can't be relied on. And this, is a, this looks bad here at home. It looks worse internationally. Canada looks like, uh, first of all, you know, we've had many disruptions over COVID and now this strike. And for it to go, you know, to end and then to be back on, I mean, it looks doubly bad internationally. People are just going to stop coming to Canada and start, you know, shipping to other places or getting their product from other suppliers. But John, haven't haven't these problems happened everywhere else? So, like, what these workers are talking about are, are worker are things that workers have talked about in other ports too. Right, but uh, I mean, the last strike we had was at the port of Montreal. It lasted one day. They got legislated back. They went to binding arbitration. They got a four-year deal. Uh, this hasn't happened in British Columbia, I understand, for 25 or 30 years. So there has been relative peace. But the situation here is you've shut down British Columbia ports. 25% of all Canadian exports go through BC. And this is seven or 8,000 people literally holding the country hostage. And I cannot imagine too many other countries allowing that to happen. Uh, you know, during COVID, people finally realized the supply chain was important. It's still important. And this is rippling through the country, affecting everybody. 
I think the government has to step in and 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 put people back to work. Okay, so how, you know, if that does happen or if they do go back to work, if whatever, you know, quickly, what would it take to recover from this? As I said, one day uh, one day of strike equals about one week of recovery. So if we're looking at a 20-day strike, approximately, uh, we could be talking three months, four months. That's well into October, November. And that's holiday season. Oh, right. And if, if there's an uptick in traffic, first of all, you have to get rid of the traffic that's sitting on the ground somewhere in boxes and try to deliver that. And, and part of the problem, think of it this way. You have a garage and you put a box at the back of your garage and then you fill your garage up with everything you own. And then you put more boxes in front of your garage door. And then you remember you need that box way at the back. You have to move everything out, put it somewhere. You may not have a place to put it. You have to find a place to put it and get that box. So do you leave those boxes and, and do the new traffic, you know, only use what's in the front? Right. How do you do that? It's a, it's a logistical nightmare for the railways and for the ports. John, uh, and it takes a lot of time to work through it. Well, John, listen, thanks very much for talking to us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pankowski. Laurie is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How are those markets doing? Well, markets are in the green again this morning, and the Dow is en route for an eight-day winning streak, which is the longest streak in uh, in four years. So, so things are looking good. And we had Canadian inflation uh, obviously come out this week, and um, you know, it was lower than expected coming in at 2.8% in June from 3.4% the month before. The latest reading is finally within kind of the Bank of Canada's 1% to 3% controlled inflation target. And we really haven't seen that uh, since March 2021. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the gas prices declining further. Again, in BC, we still have some of the highest gas prices in Canada, however, um, you know, but food inflation remains steady. And I think that's something that we all are feeling, you know, when we go to the grocery store, that food prices really haven't changed much and continue to move higher. And and that's true. And a lot of this still has to do with the base effect, Simi. So, you know, these numbers are coming off of high inflation last year. So inflation is still moving higher, uh, just at a much slower pace than it was at this time last year. And core inflation, which excludes more volatile food and energy prices, came in at 3.2% here in Canada and down from 3.5% uh, from the previous month. And, and so, again, the core inflation rate that the Bank of Canada wants to see, uh, that wants to see it at 2%. And they're saying that we're not going to see it till mid 2025. And so, so this is something I find hard to kind of believe that anyone can predict uh, yeah. where inflation will be in, you know, uh, you know, that long period of time from now. And so, you know, I, I would say just as when they were talking about inflation as transitory back in the day, um, you know, I would take that with a grain of salt. I think inflation has come down significantly. Uh, and I think that them raising interest rates is going to be coming to an end here very shortly if it hasn't already um, and so again what we're looking at here in Canada at least is again the real estate market and you know they're expecting sales to be slower but you know what we've seen is is home prices continue to rise again there's just a lack of inventory you talk to anybody you know looking for a place to to buy or to rent and there's really uh, you know nothing around especially here in in the, in the lower mainland like nothing around and also what is on the market is really expensive 
Yeah, exactly. And and then you add high rates to that and you try to get approved at a bank to to, you know, buy a property and it's it's very difficult. So I still don't see how it can't negatively affect the real estate market going into 2024. Um, you know, the only thing I could see is if the Bank of Canada decides to, you know, do a 180 and start reducing rates at some point. And, you know, when they do, uh, that's likely going to be a, you know, a, a, a good time to look at real estate, um, probably be a good time for, for stocks, bonds, all that kind of stuff. And so it's something that you want to keep your eye on. But at this point uh, in Canada, uh, they've continued to raise rates and the Fed were expecting them to pause or increase by a quarter point next week. That's still bullish for, for stocks. We finally have an answer to the uncertainty of, about uh, rates moving higher uh, because what affects your portfolio isn't the Bank of Canada. It's what the Fed does at this point, right? So what the Bank of Canada does when they raise rates, it affects our lives as Canadians if you have debt or if you're trying to buy a you know property, that sort of thing. But for stocks and the stock market out there, uh, everybody's focused on the Fed right now. Okay. Well, that's good to keep an eye on that. Let's talk about earnings season. Yeah, earnings season has uh, started with a bang. You know, we had a lot of uh, banks reporting, U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Charles Schwab. Um, you know, a lot of them are better than expected. And uh, some of that's uh, to better trading revenue, um, you know, wealth management fees, um, you know. And, and so looking at this, uh, we have some of those banks that we bought during that mini banking crisis that we saw earlier this year. Um, JP Morgan was one of those, again, the biggest bank in America. And so when you had some of that, you know, um, risk happening in, in the financial system, uh, depositors were moving uh, their money to some of those bigger banks. And so they benefited from that. And that's what we saw. So that's why we added JP Morgan at that time. We've added Bank of America now. And so when we're looking at earnings, I mean, they're coming out better than expected. And I, again, the, the, you know, companies have been resilient in this higher interest rate environment, as have consumers. And so when when, you know, economists were talking about a recession, you know, happening tomorrow, as you and I have talked about, it's just we're not there. It's not happening right now. So, again, you have to understand the momentum in the market right now. And if the Fed does pause next week, my belief is, is that we're going to see the momentum continue for some time. Okay, now I wanted to talk a little bit about AI here, artificial intelligence, because we talk about it all the time about how it's changing everything. But is it, I was wondering, is it changing investing? Yeah, you know, it, it seems that AI is becoming more and more talked about, especially in the investment world. Um, you know, and, you know, why is suddenly everyone talking about it? Even, you know, I'm across the table with clients who are, say, you know, you know, in their early 80s, and they're asking me about AI. And, you know, so it's definitely more of a general theme out there right now. And it's not new. It's, you know, being kind of built over the last 20 years. And, and what the big buzz is, Microsoft supported chat GPT. Uh, was the fastest company ever to gain 100 million users. That was in a three-month time period. And uh, the record was recently overtaken by Meta's Threads, a competitor for Twitter, uh, which you may have heard about, uh, that surpassed 150 million users globally within just 10 days of its launch. We own both of those uh, large-cap companies, uh, Meta and Microsoft. And, and again, this AI kind of theme has just been talked about more recently um, in the media and in the investment industry. And, you know, it kind of feels a little bubble-like, I will say. It's not that it doesn't have legs, but I think you got to watch out here when you, when everybody's talking about something, for example. 
And uh, and so that's kind of what we're seeing. And that's why you've seen a lot of uh, tech stocks take off like a rocket uh, year to date. Uh, you know, we have some of these companies that are up, you know, 50 percent. Uh, that's Microsoft. Google's 40 percent. Adobe's 58 <clears> percent. You know, Taiwan Semiconductors is 40 percent year to date. Remember, this is coming off a pretty bad uh, 2022 for most of these companies as well. So it's, it's not just AI, but that has a big part of it. Um, you know, when we're talking about AI, we're talking about uh, generative AI a lot of the time, which is an AI system that's capable of generating text, images, and other media by taking in kind of a sea of existing data as its raw inputs and and shooting out uh, what, what you're looking for. And, you know, I think a lot of people are, are worried about um, AI, you know, in, in various forms. And, you know, I think the, the idea is that it's going to bring more positives than negatives. And I think people thought that about the internet many, many years ago as well. True. So, you know, again, being an investor, you just have to watch out when things like this start picking up speed, you know, don't have FOMO, don't get sucked in, make sure you're buying companies that have earnings and revenues and, and are, are in the right areas in, in terms of technology. And, and just remember, you know, sectors change um, within cycles. And so it doesn't mean it's always going to be technology uh, that's leading the pack. Um, and so, you know, it's good to have some exposure, especially with what's going on out there right now, in my opinion. All right. It's also good to talk to you about it, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't want to go it alone with any of these sectors. I mean, whether, you know, commodities are doing well, you know, whether it's it's copper, whether it's oil or whether it's AI or, you know, industrials, financials, uh, we're seeing financials uptick, as I was talking about. <clears throat> you want a professional, you want a financial team looking at this daily, uh, actively managing your portfolio for you. There's just so much information being thrown at investors. Like I always wonder for do-it-yourself investors, how they deal with this type of market. I mean, again, when markets are moving higher, everybody's happy. Uh, but when the cycle changes or the sector rotates, uh, you want to make sure that you've got a financial team that's on top of it and making sure that you re remain diversified. Mm -hmm. You know, just because technology is doing well doesn't mean you should have 50% of your portfolio in technology. Had that been the case last year, um, you would have been hurt badly. So it's always about consistent long-term returns, Simi. And that's why you have a financial professional or a team in your corner. All right, Laurie, thank you for that. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team directly, 604-695-LORI, or check out their website, pinkowski.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today, as part of our farming series, we're going to introduce you to a place where you can get local honey and mead. Yes, mead. I know, I didn't think that there was a lot of that around anymore, but ask Judy Campbell about it. Judy is the owner and operator of Campbell's Gold Honey Farm and Meadery. Hi, Judy. Hi, Suma. Where are you located, by the way? We're located in Abbotsford. Okay, out in Abbotsford. And, and people can come and yeah. visit? Absolutely. Um, they can look us up, Campbell's Gold. Honey Farm and Meadery. All right. Well, how do you make mead, first of all, and what is it? Okay, mead is believed to be the oldest known alcoholic beverage, and <clears throat> the pure mead is just honey and water fermented, so you can ferment it to sweet or dry. But we make all kinds of honey wines, not just mead. Okay, and what's the difference? Well, basically, our base, just like a grape uh, wine um, is made with grapes, we make all of our honey with uh, all of our wines with honey, but we'll have honey fermented with various fruits. So we'll have honey with cranberries, honey with 
uh, crab apples. So we'll end up with what was called a melomel. So it's a combination. Uh, sometimes we'll add a spice, and that's called a methaglin. And then sometimes we'll have honey wine and apples fermented together, and that's a sizer. So there's all kinds of different honey wines. Okay, I know you and your husband, Mike, uh, you've been really working at beekeeping as well. What do you love about beekeeping? Well, you get instant feedback if, you don't, if you're not calm. You, know, yeah, you basically so, have to go right? into that hive and be as calm as a human being can be, and then they'll love you. But if you're tense in any way, they will sting you. And so you get instant feedback. Okay, so it's really meditative, it sounds like. It it really is, yeah. I mean, when you actually learn about a hive and how it operates and you learn to work in in conjunction with bees, you live a different life. Uh, it's, It's a calmer life. It's one that you really begin to see things you've never seen before. Uh, and, you know, there's a little literature out, out there that says that bees get to actually know their own beekeepers. So um, it, it, just, it just teaches you different things. Now, Judy, it must be hard to develop a business. You've got to love a beekeeping, and that's great. But how do you develop a whole business from it? What's that, what has that been like for you and Mike? Well, in the beginning, uh, we didn't think it was going to be a business. It was just my husband and one of his buddies. They teamed up to do pollination. And uh, gosh, that's got to be almost 30 years ago. Uh, and they did pollination very various berry farms in the Fraser Valley. But that actually ended up producing lots of honey. So then what are we going to do with the honey? Well, we sold it from our back door. But, you know, um, as that progressed, we realized that there was a need to scale up or scale down. And at one point in, in about 2003, we actually had a significant incident in our life. We had to start thinking about how will we go forward? We lost our son in a car accident. Oh, I'm so and sorry. And we started to shift, shift the way we thought about things. We'd been on the farm quite a while then, but um, we started to shift and we thought, what are we going to do? But we had all this life experience, uh, passions, and uh, we made wine already. We had the gardening, candle making, and, and beekeeping. So we took all that, rolled it all up into one, and, and developed a vision and we, that basically prepositioned us to scale up our passions to a full-time business. Oh, good for you. So tell me, I know sustainability is really important for you, and you want to make sure people understand how important honeybees are. Is that message getting out there? You know, remarkably it is. We're, we're tickled pink with uh, people who come to us, because we are a little bit off the beaten trap. Um, they come to us because they're looking to learn more. They're looking for the experience, and they want to see what a natural source honey can be like. And, and they'll comment on the differences they've tasted. Um, so for us, sustainability is more than we want to keep the bees alive. But to do that, you have to understand that it's really our environment that s- sustains the bees. It's a diversity, a good yeah. food supply, water, you know, all the basic things that we need, they need. Oh, Judy, you know what? Thank you so much for telling us all about it today. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm going to come out and visit when I'm in the area. That's Judy Campbell, the owner and operator of Campbell's Gold Honey Farm and Meadery. You'll find them out in Abbotsford. Pay them a visit. I would like to try some of that meat. It sounds delicious. And, of course, that's part of our BC Farming Series.